Hi there everyone and welcome back to Hits 21 where me, Rob, me, Andy and me, Lizzie all look back at every single UK number one of the 21st century from January 2000 right through to the present day. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter. You can find us at Hits21UK. That is at Hits21UK. And you can email us too. Just send it on over to Hits21Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for joining us again. We are currently looking back at the year 2000. And five, making our way through the 2000s right now. And this week, we are going to be covering the period between the 26th of June and the 27th of August in 2005. Before we get ahead with this week's episode, we're just going to take a look back at last week and have a little check who won the poll. And it was Oasis with Lila taking ah. it from Crazy Frog, would you believe? Yeah, Crazy Frog narrowly. was more popular than Akon. I really did think Crazy Frog might do it. Yeah. <laughs> it was close. <laughs> yes, a lot closer than I thought too. But there we go. Well done to Oasis. Uh, okay, on to this week's episode. And as always, we are going to give you some news headlines from around the time that the songs we're covering this week were at number one in the UK. On July 7th, a series of terrorist attacks strike London's transport system. Later referred to as 7-7, four bombings killed 52 people and injured over 700 others. The day before, London had been chosen to host the 2012 Olympic Games. And in Liverpool, 18-year-old Anthony Walker is killed in a racially motivated attack by Michael Barton, the brother of footballer Joey Barton. In London, Sir Bob Geldof hosts Live 8. The benefit concert, which also took place in 10 other cities worldwide, coincided with the G8 summit in Edinburgh. A peak of 9.6 million people watched performances from acts including Madonna, U2, Keen, Pink Floyd and a spare of the moment performance from Geldof's band The Boomtown Rats, where he once again gave us a lesson in how to die! (laughs) (sighs) And in Birmingham, a tornado hits the neighbourhood of Sparkbrook, injuring 19 people. Meanwhile, London police shoot and kill John Charles de Menez after chasing him through Stockwell Tube Station. De Menezes was wrongly believed to have taken part in a failed bomb plot in London the previous day. Wow. A summer of news. Really oh, yeah. a summer of news. Yeah. The films to hit the top of the UK box office during this period were as follows. War of the Worlds for two weeks, Madagascar for one week, Fantastic Four for one week, and then Charlie and the Chocolate Factory for four weeks. Countdown presenter Richard Whiteley dies aged 61 after a short illness. He was succeeded by Des Lynham a few weeks later, and then by another Des. Was it Des O'Connor? Yeah, and then many people since. Meanwhile, CBBC broadcast the last episode of Balamori after three years on the air. Gone but not forgotten. Repeat broadcasts continue of Balamori for several years afterwards, and it lives on forever in a nation's hearts. Meanwhile, Top of the Pops is moved from BBC One to BBC Two due to declining ratings. And Anthony Hutton wins the sixth series of Big Brother. That particular series was perhaps most notable for the infamous wine bottle incident involving 20-year-old housemate Kinga. Andy, how are the album charts looking at this point? 
Yeah, hold on to your hats for this one. So uh, last week we finished with X and Y by Coldplay, which was taking the nation by storm. Uh, that is still at number one, went nine times platinum uh, at the start of this period, but it is quickly toppled by the highest selling album of the year and the second highest selling album of the entire decade, which is Back to Bedlam by James Blunt, uh, which went 11 times platinum. Jesus. And was at number one for eight uninterrupted weeks. Oh, God. A absolutely huge run at the top. By far the highest selling album of the year. And as I say, the second of the decade. Eight weeks at number one is quite incredible. It is the only album of the entire decade of the noughties to manage eight consecutive weeks at number one. The last album to do that before this. Anyone want to take any guesses? When was the last album that went for that long at number one? Ooh, Shania Twain's one, Come On Over. Come on, earlier than that. Ooh, wow. Um, what Only year a bit was that? that? Like, 98? Yeah, a bit earlier than that. Um, Be Here Now, Oasis. No, earlier than that. I'll put you out of your misery. Both hit the post a bit, but it was actually Spice by Spice Girls, uh-huh. which went number one for eight weeks over the Christmas of 1996, those lovely halcyon days. <laughs> uh, but yes, it's the only one of the noughties to make it for that long at number one, and there won't be another one until early 2011. Uh, you might be able to guess what that one's going to be that goes for that long. But yes, that is by far the biggest hit that we've covered so far, uh, and just sneaking in for one week at the end of this, going single platinum is Wonderland by McFly. Oh. All coming together quite nicely there, actually. The album charts and the uh, the singles that we've got this week. Yeah. Lizzie, how are things in the States? Well, as I mentioned in the last episode, Mariah Carey dominated the summer of 2005 with We Belong Together. But we had a one-week interruption in early July by that year's American Idol winner, Carrie Underwood, and her debut single, Inside Your Heaven. It predictably failed to chart in the UK, however, and she wouldn't have a a UK Top 100 single until October 2014. As ever, we move on to albums, and it's a much busier affair. First up, we've got Somewhere Down in Texas by George Strait, which got to number one for one week in America, but also predictably failed to chart in the UK. After that, Robert Sylvester Kelly spent two weeks at number one, followed by two weeks at the top for Now That's What I Call Music 19. There are no songs on it that we've covered, but it does have One Thing by Amory and Feel Good Inc. by Gorillaz on it. Ah. It also predictably failed to chart in the UK because we already had our own Now 19 and it was released in March 1991. Next up is One Week at Number One for Fireflies by Faith Hill. It was a third number one album in the US, but it surprisingly failed to chart in the main UK albums chart after her previous three had all hit the top 30. It did at least get to number four on our country albums chart, however. And finally this week, we have one week at number one for Chapter 5 by Stained. (laughs) It went platinum in the US, but failed to chart in the main UK albums chart, despite reaching number seven on our rock and metal albums chart. Thank you very much, both of you. And we are going to press ahead with the songs this week. And the first one up that we have for you is this. Hit him with a little ghetto Those who wish to follow me My ghetto gospel I welcome with my hands 
This is Ghetto Gospel by Tupac featuring Elton John. Released as the lead single from his 10th studio album titled Loyal to the Game, which was also his 6th posthumous studio album, Ghetto Gospel is Tupac's 17th single overall to be released in the UK and his first to reach number one. But this is the last time that we'll be discussing Tupac Shakur on this podcast. Not the last time that we'll be discussing Elton though. Ghetto Gospel went straight in at number one as a brand new entry knocking Crazy Frog off the top of the charts. That still kind of makes me laugh inside. It stayed at number one for three weeks. In its first week atop the charts, it sold 56,000 copies, beating competition from Slow Down by Bobby Valentino, which got to number four, Rocky Body Mike Check 1 2 by MVP, which got to number five. In week two, it sold 55,000 copies, beating competition from Crazy Chick by Charlotte Church. Probably not jumping on the Crazy X bandwagon uh, of summer <laughs> 2005. And in week three, it sold 40,000 copies, beating competition from We Belong Together by Mariah Carey, which got to number two, and Since You've Been Gone by Kelly Clarkson, which got to number five. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, Ghetto Gospel dropped one place to number two. By the time it was done on the charts, it had been inside the top 100 for 39 weeks. The song is currently officially certified platinum in the UK as of 2023. So, big deal. Uh, Lizzie, you can open the show with uh, Tupac and Elton John. It's quite interesting, this. Is this? I know it's not our first posthumous number one, but it might be our first posthumous number one that has been constructed after the artist has died. Yes. Um, that I think it, so. Yeah, that only yeah, Tupac just provided his voice and everything else around it was uh, constructed by Eminem. Um, yeah, as, of course, as we know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't I I almost don't think it'll be the last. I think especially I I can't think of any other examples, but with AI and whatnot, I feel like this is something we might see more of in the coming years, but We'll see about that. Anyway, back to 2005. Um, I think, yeah, I think this is mostly good. Um, I think 
I maybe have some some reservations about it just because of um, the whole nature of it is like it's Tupac's vocals put over this new track that Eminem has created. And I think there is a sense of would Tupac have agreed to this? Like, is would this have been something that he'd wanted to put out? Given that I think the track had existed in some form since about 1992-ish. And again, it's just been merged with this new beat, which sounds very typical of like Eminem at the time. It sounds like something that could have easily been on encore. But yeah, I think there's, there is just that sense of, well, as much as I'm sure the estate would have had to okay it, it does feel like you're maybe taking a voice from someone who can't necessarily speak for themselves and you're presenting it in a way that is is sort of imparting a message and yeah it's like given that this was about five years before he died and about 15 before this single comes out it's like would this you know would the lyrics to this have stuck and is that something that he would have wanted to have in the public domain. It's the same thing with like bootlegs and demos being released by artists. A lot of them are very good and are cherished by the fans who listen to them. But there is that sense of these are probably demos for a reason in that they're not finished. It's like going through somebody's diary or their scrapbook and just picking out random fragments and in a sense, you're taking away part of an artist's like private repertoire, something that they they kind of keep to themselves, and they they might even treasure that. And yeah, I don't know. I I feel like I'm sort of rambling here, but there is a sense of maybe unease about the the way this track is constructed. As much as I think it sounds really good, I think the the instrumental is solid. I think there are parts where the vocals don't quite line up with the beat where it feels like it's a bit out of step and it's the sort of thing that a living artist would be able to correct as they record in the studio because they've got the track in their ear and they can sync it to that beat whereas all like Eminem would be working with is this instrumental, the vocal sample and, I don't know, a laptop or a, you know, a mixing desk and that's fine but it doesn't it doesn't always sync up as perfectly as just having the artist do it themselves. Um, but but yeah, I, like I I never quite got into Tupac as a kid, even though I had a big hip hop phase. Mainly just because I didn't have like a place where I could start with him. He he felt kind of before my time, and in the same way as like being a wrestling fan. I didn't really know who Owen Hart was. I knew him simply as that wrestler who died. To me, Tupac was that that rapper who died. Same with um, Notorious B.I.G., who I didn't check out until much later. So I think this would have been something that I would have heard at the time and quite liked, but I never really dug deeper than this because it did just sound a little bit like an Eminem offcut with some dug-up lyrics and vocals put over it which I didn't think was a bad thing but it didn't make me want to to look deeper it's good in terms of how it sounds but I think if you dig a bit deeper then I'm maybe less positive about it but still 
mild thumbs up overall. Much like Lizzie, I, I'm more interested in the story behind this and the context behind this than the actual song itself. Like, it's nice as a song. It's nice enough. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty decent. I've got no particular problem with it. I like the pairing of Tupac and Elton here. I, I, I generally quite like it when duets are made up of people from very different styles, from very different places, to create yeah. something new in the middle. I'm I'm generally a fan of that. Um, and I do think it's pretty seamless. You know, if it wasn't for Elton's obviously much younger vocals and for the fact that Tupac is dead, I you know, you could have fooled me that this had been put together as something new. Um, as it is, it obviously wasn't. Am I right in thinking that the Elton involvement is entirely a 2005 invention that Tupac had never put that in the demo. Am I no. right? Thinking yeah, that? yeah, you're right. Yeah, no, no, yeah, no. yeah, yeah. I yeah. think Kim and Eminem were good friends. So yes, they were. Right. Yeah. I see. As a song, it's absolutely fine. I don't think it does anything that kind of desecrates Tupac's memory. But I really don't know enough about him to really be able to say that with any authority. I think I, I completely agree with um, with Lizzie's point about being unsure about whether he would have approved of this. Um, and I think that about Tupac in general, it makes me deeply uncomfortable how much they've done with him posthumously. Um, I mean, it's I, I can kind of forgive when people like Michael Jackson or whatever have had like one posthumous album of other news material. I can sort of forgive it, but Tupac has had eight posthumous studio albums. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. it, that's not okay. As far as I'm concerned, there's no way that he really had that much usable material in the bank. A lot of that will either have been produced to hell and back, and he has barely any presence on it, or it's stuff that was supposed to be in the vault, and he would have been mortified to have seen released. I'm sure. It's just there's no way that anyone has that much backed up <laughs> at that age um, that's usable. So I find that all quite in poor taste, and that's kind of the feeling I get from this, to be honest. I mean, not from the song, but the video, um, where it's basically like playing out this, it's not Tupac himself, but playing out this metaphor of the last day of yeah. a man's life, and then Tupac's mum mm. making a statement at the end. It's all very poor taste. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's quite crass, to be honest, and... I wonder about who made money out of this, other than Eminem. And, you know, fair enough, he produced it, he works on it, but I wonder who profited from all of this. Um, and that makes me a bit uncomfortable, to be honest. I also just, I find it a bit hard to get particularly invested because obviously Tupac's not here to be involved in this and Elton didn't have any actual involvement in this either. It's just a sample. So there's like no artist, weirdly. There's like there's no, there's no actual artist for this song. It's mainly just a production thing, and that's very strange. I never know how to approach songs that have that kind of setup. Um, what I will say though is that weirdly, this is Elton John's second, almost third consecutive number one. Technically, which is really odd. <laughs> he had "Are You Ready for Love" before this, which was his most recent single before this, and. Other than a few kind of non-album promo stuff, his most recent single before that was Sorry Seems to Be the Hardest Word. And mm. he's having a hell of a run at the moment. I mean, two of them are, I don't know, basically cop-outs, but Are You Ready for Love did decently. I'd love to see that because I'm a big fan of Elton John and it's nice to be able to talk to him, uh, talk about him again. But um, yeah, this is fine as a song. I'm really deeply uncomfortable with everything behind this. Um, it really reminds me of the um, the posthumous thing that grossed me out more than anything else, which was 
on Amy Winehouse's posthumous album, Lioness. And a lot of it was quite nice. You know, there were some really lovely covers on there that were basically just offcuts from when she was alive. But some of it is stuff that really should not have been released. And I think it's the very last song on the album, um, A Song For You, her cover of that. And it made me so upset listening to it that I've never listened to it again because she sounds so unwell, like so audibly not okay. Like she can barely enunciate a word in that song. And when I was listening to it, I just thought, oh my God, this is horrible. I I was never supposed to hear this. This is really, really horrible. And since then, I've really just not been okay with posthumous music at all. I find it all really uncomfortable and kind of like profiting off someone's death quite frankly so yeah I, I'm not really comfortable with the existence of this song but as a song in itself robbed of all that context it's fine it's fine so I've got mixed feelings to be honest yeah I kind of I, I'm sort of sat where you two are in the sense that I'm generally cool with ghetto gospel like the whole thing is is basically it's an Eminem mashup and it's a pretty stand-up you know, mashup. You know, there aren't many minds out there, I don't think, that could take a two-pack demo from 1992, splice it together with Elton John's Indian Sunset, put his own twist on the beat, which I think is the best part of the song, uh, the instrumental, mm. and then bring out a 2005 number one single from it all. Um, you know, I think from moment to moment, this progresses really nicely without ever stretching itself that thin in terms of ideas. Um, I also think as well, like, looking back, when you're 11 years old and this comes out, this is this sounds like super dramatic and like sophisticated. This is like the height of sophistication when you're 11 years old, especially that final section where the strings come in and take control. Like it sounds like yeah. mature music when you're 11 yeah. years old. Um, I think that moment where the strings really rise up at the end and you get the dun-dun, like that's I think that's the best moment of the song should have happened sooner maybe it should have happened under Pac's voice sometimes Um, and above all else as well I think it's always good to hear from Pac when his demo material is treated with a decent degree of respect like this because M clearly put a lot of work into the task and it's miles Mm. better than anything that came out of Encore (laughs) Um, well apart from uh, like Toy Soldiers but um but the rest of the album, Loyal to the Game, it's not really that consistent. And after a while, it just kind of turns into a revolving door of rappers that fancy laying down 16 bars for a fee and slapping their name on a Tupac album. Um, but this is all right. I think this is probably the best cut from it. Um, but the that word, treated, the treatment, it, it kind of gets into my issues with it. Because as much as I think that this is respectful of Park and it's you know definitely seen some hard, serious work contributed to it by M, the whole thing just rings a bit hollow. Like by this point, like you were saying, Andy Park has had more posthumous albums than actual albums, and you get the sense that they're really yeah. wringing the towel dry behind the scenes. Like you know, the the, the question of how much a dead person can be exploited, I think, is one for the philosophers. But I think this is starting to take the piss a little bit now. Because, like, how much demo material can they really find? How much of it is actually any good? And how much money can they really make from it? Because each of these demo albums, from Are You Still Down all the way through to 2010, like, they just get worse and worse and worse until they finally yeah. give up. 
Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. with it being that many albums and them having stopped quite a few years ago now, it gives me the feeling that it was literally everything. Yeah. Like, everything they could find. Yeah. I, I don't think I've ever encountered any kind of artist who wants to release even half of what they actually write and do demos of. So there's at least a good three, four albums worth yeah. in there that I'm sure he would have been mortified by, if not more than that. Things are unreleased for a reason, aren't they? So Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I do think that the archives were empty by the time of 2010 when they finally stopped. Um, but just kind of continuing further into my point, on all of the albums that Pat released while he was alive, he's looking right at the camera on the front, like on the album cover, is him staring straight into the camera. And on every album after his death, he's looking away from the camera. Uh, Are You Still Down is kind of up for debate. I think he's looking above the camera and beyond it as opposed to straight at it, but his face is so close that it's kind of hard to tell. But I think this song, like, I, I think about the way Pac's image was handled in death and the way that Ghetto Gospel contributes to it. Because the image of him that gets painted isn't really a complete representation of him. And obviously that's sort of to be expected, because when a person dies, you know, you don't have people at their funerals coming along and saying, actually, it could be a proper dickhead sometimes. Like, you know, I think there is this idea, it's like, just don't speak ill of the dead. You know, don't represent their full character. Let's just pick the best bits. And so I'm not saying that Ghetto Gospel is, like, unique in this sense or that it's committed any particular moral crime. Um, Because also one song is just one piece of a a bigger puzzle. You know, but the, the package that Ghetto Gospel comes as part of feels like a whitewash a little bit. Because this is, you know, it's wistful and plaintive, but it's also, like... Painting him as a bit, like, Tupac is a bit of a scholar and a bit of a godly man. Like, how in death he's apparently, like, a conduit for God's word and is someone whose word we should follow. It's like he's been turned into, like, in death he has been turned into such, like, a prophet almost. This real messiah figure where you get these lyrics like, it ain't about black or white because we're human. Or, I make mistakes but I learn from everyone. Or, when I write I go blind and let the Lord do his thing. Like, this kind of softening of his sharper edges. You know, because it, it feels like his, his life as it, as it was when he was killed is not, you know, it's not accurately represented by anything that really came afterwards. Like, you know, this was a man who went to prison, who was married and loved people, who shot people and was himself shot before he was killed. He was briefly friends with Jim Carrey. He was a man who was born in New York but bled Los Angeles. He was a man with rape charges hanging over his head. He was a man with Black Panther roots. He was a man who lived several lives worth in just 25 years. And Ghetto Gospel is like the big last hurrah of the demos they found. And, eh, like, I understand that this is all, you know, hindsight and maybe if something like uh, the opening track from Loyal to the Game, Soldier Like Me, if that got to number one as well, then the picture wouldn't feel so incomplete um but but even on top of that i do think some of the production choices on park's voice here are a little bit odd because his voice is slowed down considerably from the demo yeah and it points it feels like he's really raspy and sort of hoarse and it's not the best effect i think you know the the basic idea of this was done better on changes which was another demo given prominence by someone else after Park was dead. And it's weird to say all this and still 
like Ghetto Gospel, though, because I do. You know, I, I think the choice of sample is unusual, but it's effective. And Pike was a great MC at his best, and he's mostly engaging here, and I'm interested in what he has to say. My only my only problems with this, apart from the odd production choices on Pac's voice and maybe thinking that the instrumental is a little bit underdeveloped until the very end, I think it does come from this ethical question about, like, mining the archives for more material after the person has gone. Because truthfully, I've never quite settled on how I feel about dead people's material being used and whether whether a dead person can be exploited um, you know, because I think also this kind of taps into whether people believe in an afterlife or, you know, whether they don't, because I think a lot of people who, and I myself am uncomfortable with this, but, you know, people who have a problem with um, posthumous material being released that wasn't already planned to be released, because technically the Machiavelli album, the Don Illuminati album, that was technically a posthumous release, but it was already all finished and set to be released. He just died a couple of weeks before it came out. And I think, you know, it kind of taps into, you know, because I think, you know, we kind of think of Tupac in this sense as like looking on from the afterlife, wondering whether he's comfortable with his material that he didn't want to be released being used in, in public. But then there's also people who would say that like, well, there's no brain activity Pac has no concept. Like it's a, it is something that is incomprehensible. Pac has no idea what's happening, so he's not being hurt by this. So can we not carry on? Just you know, getting some material. Maybe we have better instincts than he did with his own material. And you know, there's all these kinds of discussions. So I don't really want to come down on either side of it. Um, but yeah, it's. I, I do think that the fact that it exists creates problems for itself. Um, I think if it, this had been released on its own in 92 or how... Because it was originally meant to be put on a compilation album, um, the original version of Ghetto Gospel, which was a bit faster and set to a different beat. That was set to be on a compilation record, I think, but they couldn't... I think it was supposed to be on some kind of Christmas album that he did, um, and it didn't... They couldn't clear the sample, and so it all got left. And so maybe he wanted it to be released at one stage and just kind of ran out of time but yeah you know i'm like you lizzie a bit mild thumbs up about it i appreciate it i have good memories of listening to this on my mate's nokia phone while playing football in the street after school um and especially i associate this quite heavily with 7-7 and watching the news coverage through the window of my house while playing out in the street um but yeah so i'm cool with it i'm just kind of ambivalent about it i i feel like i wish i liked it more but eh, what are you gonna do i'm glad you reminded me about changes i need to go back and listen to that one i remember that one being quite good i used to like that mainly because of um the sample though i i'm a yeah, yeah, huge yeah. huge too. fan of the way it is and that that changes was i, I knew that when i was like five six old well however old i was when it came out and that was my introduction to the way it is which i absolutely love it's a bit of a common theme with um samples introducing me to songs i prefer the originals of like toy soldiers <laughs> yeah yeah that's what hip-hop is great for that really oh, yeah, is yeah. what it's great for and also like all of daft punk's <laughs> catalog um oh i usually yeah. prefer daft punk's versions with that time to yeah, release yeah. the beast but yeah anyway we will get on with our second song this week and it is this 
life is brilliant My life is brilliant My love is pure I saw an angel Of that I'm sure She smiled at me on the subway She was with another man I won't lose no sleep on that Cause I've got a plan You're beautiful You're beautiful You're beautiful It's true I saw your face In a crowded place And I don't know Oh, was I not supposed to come in yet? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this is You're Beautiful by James Blunt. Released as the second single from his debut studio album titled Back to Bedlam. We heard about it before. You're Beautiful is James Blunt's second single overall to be released in the UK and his first to reach number one. However, it is his last. And this is the last time that we'll be discussing James on this podcast. Your Beautiful first entered the UK chart at number 12, reaching number one in its seventh week on the chart, knocking Tupac and Elton John off the top spot. It stayed at number one for five weeks. Across its five weeks at number one, it sold 219,000 copies. The highest new entries during this period were as follows, uh, just in each week. So we have Electricity by Elton John, which got to number four. Army of Lovers by Lee Ryan, which got to number three. Bad Day by Daniel Powter, which got yes. to number two. <laughs> o by Sierra and Ludacris, which got to number four. And All the Way by Craig David, which got to number three. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, Your Beautiful dropped one place to number two. The song initially left the charts in March 2006 before re-entering in 2012 and 2013. To date, it has achieved a total of 43 weeks inside the top 100. The song is currently officially certified two times platinum, so double platinum, in the UK as of 2023. Andy, James Blunt, go ahead. I mean, first of all, oh, that kills about Bad Day, because this, this and Bad Day sit in very much the same place. Um, yeah. Have probably had all the same people buying them, but Bad Day, for me, personally, Bad Day is so much better. I really like that song. But the Battle of Coffee Pop. It is the yeah. Battle of Coffee Pop for the ultimate, yeah. Um, as for this, I mean, there's a lot of stuff, isn't there? There's a lot of factors into how this took off. First of all, there's the weird-ass video where he's sitting in the snow getting naked, um, and then there's the odd voice, shall we say, of James Blunt, where he kind of perpetually sounds like someone's pinching him on the bum. Um, he's, he's just—he's just got this tone about him that's just a little bit kind of frayed, like a little bit nervous all the time, like ooh. <laughs> and I think people talk to that tone. You know when you're listening to James Blunt, don't you? Um, and also, it's just so universal. This song—it's—it's it's just like, well, okay. 
let's make a song about someone who's really beautiful and we're going to call it You're Beautiful. <laughs> okay, great. Um, and, you know, that, that's kind of the key to the song's success, really, is that it gets to really simple, really universal feelings, but from a singer who's a little bit off the beaten track, who's a little bit different. And I can see why people went crazy for him. They'd be like, oh, he's interesting. Let's have more of this. Let's buy Back to Bedlam. And then let's not get Wise Men to number one, damn it. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's, I, I can definitely see why it took off. I have no inkling as to why it got quite as big as it did, because it's really not that good. Um, but I do think it gets unfair criticism. I think it's mainly just because of how ubiquitous it is, how absolutely all-encompassing this song was at the time that people got sick of it. I, I don't think it would have anywhere near the annoying reputation that it does if it had got number one for one or two weeks and then disappeared. If it had been something like Bad Day in terms of that kind of exposure, I don't think it would have been anywhere nearly as reviled, anywhere near as much as reviled as it is these days. Um, and that probably kind of goes without saying, to be honest. But it's 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 funny really that he is so so commercially successful, but very few people would ever admit to owning that album and to having bought this single. It's like a sort of quiet Tories effect for music that like <laughs> you know, spot the person who will admit to getting this to number one for eight weeks. It's not like Amarillo where people were trying to join the hype train. This was a thing that was sort of shameful even at the time, really. It was not cool. From my memory, the song was never ever cool. Um, and even less so because of the ubiquity, but particularly um, a source of much derision at the time. I don't know if you two remember this, but when James Blunt appeared on Sesame Street, I think it was a couple of years later, actually, James Blunt appeared on Sesame Street singing a version of this song about triangles. It goes, my triangle, my <laughs> triangle. And then it goes, like, it has three corners and three equal sides. And... Um, <laughs> It's so, so funny. Whenever I hear this, I just think, but triangle. So, yes, um, it's hard not to take the piss out of this because it, it's James Blunt. It's your beautiful. Come on, I can't not take the piss out of it a little bit. But it is quite nice, actually. Like, it's just a nice, gentle ballad. That false start thing is just silly. I don't know why that's in there at all. Maybe to give him a bit of authenticity, I don't know. But other than that, like it's just a nice straight down the line ballad which no one can really disagree with on a basic level. And um that universality has just propelled it forever. Um I do think James Blunt's got much better songs. I've already mentioned Wise Men. I, I and I did used to be quite fond of that actually. Nineteen seventy three is fairly decent as well. Goodbye My Lover is unbelievably sickly sweet. Um but um, that song and a couple of other James Blunt songs actually are forever immortalised by Gavin and Stacey because Bryn is such a huge fan of all those songs and sings them loudly in the car when he's upset. Um, so yeah, they're forever immortalised through that. It's my only chance to talk about James Blunt, and I've said everything I've got to say about him really, except that people are probably a little bit too harsh on the guy. People liked this at the time, they bought the album and the song in their millions. It's okay. It's just okay. Let's not make too much fun of him. Oh, Andy, I wish I agreed with you. <laughs> um, no, I don't like this at all. I think even if it had just been number one for one week, I would still dislike it on quite a visceral level. Um, I think it's creepy. I think it's self-pitying. I think it sounds shit. I think he's a shit singer. I was coming into this from a difficult place and I think as the week has gone on 
I've liked this song a lot less and I've liked him a lot less. Um, I think I'll start with the song, I guess. I just, from like a bass level, as soon as you hear his voice, it's like right up there in the nasal cavity. You're like, it's like, you know, when you ask a child to like open their mouth at a dentist and they're like, ah, it's like, <laughs> it's that kind of timbre. Um, there's some really horrible, like, laboured s- syncopation on this. Like, she smiled me on the subway. She was one of man. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that line doesn't work. I agree with you on that. That line doesn't work at all. I don't think many of the lines work because it's like, I won't lose no sleep on that because I've got, got a plan, which he never explains. Um, it's all just like, I, again, I think it's kind of empty. Um, I think he's tried. I almost feel like he's tried to wreck on this in recent years by saying it's a creepy song about a stalker. And I, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I think what what really happened is he probably did see his ex with another man on a subway and he kind of tossed this off in a couple of minutes afterwards to get out some feelings. I don't think it is like I'll be watching you by the police where the kind of stalker overtones of it are quite obvious if you look at it for more than about a second. Um... But yeah, like, just going back to the song as well, there's some really, like, you know, we have that thing we often have where we have an individual moment in a song which is, like, really good and it only goes for, like, two seconds, the delirious moment. This one Mm. has, like, the opposite of that in that (laughs) it has that, at the moment on the explicit version on the album where she could see from my face that I was fucking high. (laughs) It's like, oh, Jesus. That's not in the... In the single release, really, is it? I don't yeah, think that's in the radio. High. Edit, so. yeah. yeah, no, I, I know. It's, I mean, it's still not a great line, but the the explicit version is considerably worse. And there are other songs that are guilty of that, like CeeLo Green and Forget yeah. You. Yeah, it's one of those where just just take that out. It doesn't work. Um, but yeah, I think my biggest problem with this is his voice. Like it's be, it's like being serenaded by a shrimp it just (laughs) rubs me the wrong way i don't like it wow i think the song doesn't go anywhere i think the lyrics are like i say they're half creepy half pointless and the whole vibe is just kind of funereal and a bit weird and it makes me uncomfortable like in a way that it probably shouldn't but I know for a fact that like people have the songs at weddings and they have this song at funerals even. Like I saw a recent example of this in a documentary called uh, Rain in My Heart from the year after this. Um, during the making of this is by filmmaker Paul Watson. Two people died. It's a documentary about alcoholism. And this song features quite prominently because one of the participants, Nigel, um, he's been he's been dry for something like ten years, but his liver disease kind of catches up with him, and you sort of get to witness like the last moments of his life with his wife Kath, and just, like she's doing her best to like keep it together for her and her kids because she knows like once he dies, it, she's screwed. Like he was the main earner in the household, and and all of that he was the the person kind of holding together the family but you can see the scars that have been left on this family by his his illness and 
yeah, all, all I can think when I hear this song, as much as I'd like to, to not have this image in my head, is that that poor woman, Kath, and just like her at a funeral, breaking down, and her son right next to her, just kind of staring into space, like it hasn't quite sort of hit him yet what's actually happened. And yeah, I listened to this song and as much as I don't like it, it does make me think, I, I hope that family's okay. I hope they found peace after what happened. Um, mm. But yeah, just I just kind of wanted to raise that. I think it's a really good documentary. It's, it's not an easy watch. I'd say make sure you're in a good frame of mind before you watch it, but it is all on YouTube. It's uh, Rain in My Heart from 2006. I definitely recommend it, but... Mm wouldn't recommend this song particularly i'm sorry <laughs> i will leave a link to rain in my heart in the description uh, so Thanks. if anybody wants to listen to, uh, watch that then they can just follow they can go on the notes bit on in the podcast <laughs> if i could just pick you up on a couple of things there lizzie i mean i as much as i enjoyed your list of things you don't like at the start um and most of them are fair i will pick you up on he's a bad singer like i think that's a bit of a low blow like he he he's not like technically incompetent as a singer. I don't think. Like I don't like his tone. I agree with you on that. But he can sing perfectly fine. Like I think let's not go nuts. You know, he's all, he's not that bad. I don't know because because I, I was trying to think of other examples like um, Wise Men in 1973. And as much as I'm sure they're better, I still feel like he has this kind of weedy falsetto that breaks yeah. out and a sort of nasality and overall it just it sounds a bit weak and like I'm, maybe a bad singer is too harsh but it's a, a singer with a particular like timbre that I just can't get on with at all yeah, that's like, fair. Mm. Fair. I mean I do think he's better when he's not in the higher register I, I do think he's less grating when he's not way up there in the clouds with his notes um, but yeah and as for him as a person, I mean, I, I kind of agree with you. It's not particularly easy to like. Um, the thing that really strikes me about him, though, is that he comes across as the exact type of person who would really hate the music of James Blunt. And yes. I, I can't process oh. that in my head. It's really strange. that I just can't put James Blunt the singer and James Blunt the cynical, kind of misanthropic Twitter edgelord. I can't put those two things together at all. It's weird. I don't... But I don't think he is a cynical misanthrope. I think he's just someone whose one bit is self-deprecation and he has milked that that cow, like, dry. Yeah. And it's all in the background of, like, please buy my book, please come see my tour, but I'm going to play that awful song that you hate. Like, right, okay. Mm. <laughs> you, you do you, I guess, but just don't leave me out of here. Yeah, I often wonder about the people who like this song when all he does is slag it off. Uh, yeah, yeah, what like, about them? Yeah, I, anyway. Um, with this, like, I understand the criticisms about how this can come across as manipulative and insincere. You know, I, I've seen a few people compare this to bands like Air Supply or, like, other Ernest Manpain singer-songwriter acts that we've covered before him. I feel like there's a there's an air of Daniel Beddingfield slower stuff about this, Ooh, too. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, and... To a significant degree, I sympathise with those points of view because this is not my thing. 
really. I, I think it takes itself so seriously and it, it does leave itself open for parody because of how, you know, earnest it comes across. Like that music video is just ripe for being taken the piss out of as Weird Al Yankovic complied uh, with um, Your Pitiful uh, the year after this or a couple of years after this. Um, the mistake at the beginning is actually a mistake that they decided to leave in, apparently. He came in too early. There was a hand that went up in the producer, uh, like through the glass in the recording studio, and then he started again, but they just left the initial take, the the mistake in. I'm not really sure why. Um, it was cut out of the radio edit in quite a lot of places. Um, so, mm, yeah. Um... Like, yeah, with the music video, though, back to that for a second, like, the rain slash hail slash sleet stuff and him literally bearing his skin and soul. And I think, Lizzie, you were saying that, you know, he doesn't elaborate on what the plan is. I think the music video explains it. And then years later, James Blunt confirmed this. The plan is just to commit suicide, which is... Yeah. Also adds to this creepy vibe where it's like, if I'm not with you, I'll literally kill myself. Like... I, you know, I'm, but the thing is with this, I'm not entirely unconvinced that this wasn't on some level one last attempt to tug on his ex's heartstrings and talk to her again in some way. Because I did that, but when I was 17, you know, James Blunt is 31. You know, I, I was 17, I was out of my first relationship, joined a band, wrote some songs about how I was heartbroken, hoped that she'd hear them, but she never did. And you just grow up because you realise that life isn't a film. And so like, but with, you know, looking at stuff like Lonely last week, I think Your Beautiful kind of fits alongside things like that. And also like, I Don't Want You Back and Burn and whatnot, you know, the kind of hopeless romantic breakup song. Um, but, there are things about this that I like and I didn't expect to like because, God, five weeks at number one, it felt like it was inescapable. It was the first time in my life I think I'd ever understood what the word overplayed means. You know, because, oh God, it really did never go away. But I think what I do find, not charming necessarily, but what I do like about this is that it is ultimately a song about the battle between fate and coincidence. You know, were, were they destined to be together and fall apart? Were they destined to bump into each other on the subway as opposed to the tube? You know, is there an angel with a smile on her face after all, you know, etc.? Or is it all just something that happened by accident? And is it better for James to just wander away and get on with his life? And I think that's the, where the story sort of ends up. Um... And the story, I guess, is kind of... It's not compelling, but, you know, I, I wouldn't mind turning the page just to see where it finished if this was a, you know, like a short story. Um, because it's it's the way that it's told, though, that I think is the biggest issue with me. I agree with both of you that I'm not the biggest fan of his voice. I think that it's definitely distinctive, but I think this kind of, like, almost adorably posh affectation is it's it all i think it's all summed up in that moment where he says saw your face like i just it's <laughs> all uh, yeah but it also sounds kind of annoyingly familiar maybe that's because of acts like passenger that we get in the future 
you know, the kind of feeble British indie voice that we get. Oh, um, I hate it. It, oh. it is basically oh. the male version of Welcome to My Kitchen. We have avocados and bananas. Like, you know, it's <laughs> that sort of thing. The in- intonations and inflections, they feel like they're cribbed also from stuff like Simon and Garfunkel and Sufjan Stevens, but like nowhere near as absorbing or mysterious. Um, I am kind of a sucker for the opening lead line on the guitar, just the do-do-do-do. Like, it's sparse enough and memorable enough to feel like it's important. It really, you know, as soon as you hear that kind of aching, you know, the do-do-do-do, you're straight back to 2005 that summer. Um, But I think, yeah, this suffered from being overplayed quite a lot because in isolation, I think it's just ordinary. You know, it's just a totally meh thing. But it became this, like, behemoth. And it turned James Blunt into a star, basically, overnight. And he never hit those heights again, because I feel like it set him up for something that he couldn't match. And then when it re- when he realised that it, he, you know, it, it, he couldn't match it, and that everybody kind of hated him after a while, a bit like Crazy Frog, actually... If you think about it, you know, it just, uh, and then he, like you were saying, Lizzie, just decided, oh, this is where the money is. If I just lean into like pretending that I'm total shit and I think that all the stuff I've done is nonsense, then that will get me advice columns in the Metro nine years from now. Or, you know, I'll become a bit of a, you know, James Blunt for PM character on Twitter. I, I could do this, you know, but. Lizzie, funnily enough, you were talking about funerals um, and this sounding funereal. Obviously, the big funeral number from James Bunt was Goodbye, My Lover, which was the most played and requested song at British funerals in 2006. And in 2022, there was a question asked about that song on Popmaster and the contestant had no idea what the song was or even who James (laughs) Bunt was. (laughs) <laughs> and doesn't that just explain how a journey across the public, the surface of the public eye can go? You know, I, I've never really liked Blunt as a person. I find his slightly smug act that lands him in newspapers and Twitter and things like that. This cheeky banter, this sophisticated locker room shtick. Mm. Um, I find it all a bit nauseating. I find him much, you know, much more open as a, a pop star you know, much more bearable as a pop star. You know, I do think that I can kind of not forgive the self-deprecating stuff because it does sort of irritate me. But like when people go and see him, apparently he basically says, I know the ones that you've all turned up for, but I have a new album. So humor me while I play these and then I'll humor you by playing the stuff at the end, which fair enough. It's a level of openness and understanding that most pop stars don't attempt to get with their audiences, but it's all the other stuff that comes with it. There's so much baggage, like to that line, the the, the things that make him who he is as a person in the public figure. Um, but yeah, he he comes across as someone who kind of knows or feels that he doesn't necessarily belong in the life that he's been given, um, and he can work that out on his own. As far as I'm concerned, you know, I kind of forgot that he was still on Twitter. I presumed that like you'd go onto his account and his last tweet would be like in 2020 or 2021 talking about like this bloody government and bloody lockdown, I tell you, and then nothing else. 
Like, I just, I didn't know he was still tweeting and still searching his own name on Twitter in order to drag it out and quote tweet it and get loads of people to laugh, uh, apparently, and have lots of people... Hello, James, if you're listening. Yeah, I was just thinking (laughs) that, like, you know, there's a a chance, there is a chance that he may, uh, may have stumbled across our humble podcast. I think James Blunt is a contender. Hello, James, if you're listening. I think James is a contender for the poshest person we have yet had to reach a number one. Any other contenders there? Maybe Sophie Ellis-Bexter? But he's so damn posh. He really is. (laughs) So I'm just going to leave that there. I don't think there's anyone else we've had so far that is quite as upper class at the top of the charts as James Blunt. Maybe Mm. Posh Spice, maybe Sophie Ellis-Bexter, maybe the Bedding Fields. Those would probably be the nominees, but... Yeah, and I actually thought. think as well, he's well, he's the only person that we will ever have on the podcast that stood guard at the Queen Mother's body. He, he protected her coffin while she was lying in state. Do you reckon he would say her life was brilliant? <laughs> oh, sorry, did he come in too early? <laughs> <laughs> I think James Blunt is worth saving because he did give me one of my favourite US office jokes where Michael is just playing the sample of Goodbye My Lover over and over again. <laughs> yeah. And Dwight just says, why don't you just buy the whole song? And he just says, I don't have to buy it. I just want to taste it. I just want a little taste of it. (laughs) All right, we will move on to our final song this week. And it is this. This is I'll Be Okay by McFly. Released as the second single from their second studio album titled Wonderland, we heard about it before, I'll Be Okay is McFly's sixth single overall to be released in the UK and their fourth to reach number one. Good hit rate. And this is not the last time we'll be discussing McFly on this podcast either. I'll Be Okay went straight in at number one as a brand new entry knocking James Blunt off the top of the charts. It stayed at number one for one week. In its first and only week atop the charts, it sold 46,000 copies, beating competition from Fuck Forever by Baby Shambles, which got to number four, The Trooper by Iron Maiden, which got to number five, and This Town It Big Enough for the Both of Us by Justin Hawkins as British Whale, which got to number six. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, I'll Be Okay fell seven places to number eight, By the time it was done on the charts, it had been inside the top 100 for 11 weeks. The song has never received any official certification from the British phonographic industry. Ooh, not been sustained by the shift downloads just yet. Lizzie, how do we feel about I'll Be Okay? 
It's okay. Um, okay. Um, when we did, um, what was it? Five Colors in Her Hair, I did remark that it sounded like the theme tune for like a sitcom based around McFly, where if they had their own Miami 7, that would be the theme tune. You could say maybe that's the theme tune to season one, and this sounds like the theme music to season two, where they've all grown up a bit they're all a bit better at acting but the life on the road is starting to show they they sound a bit more gruff and a bit more fatigued but overall they're doing just okay and it is this kind of big positive anthem for that and yeah that's the, the kind of vibe i do get from this it is sort of upbeat cbbc theme tune <laughs> sort of music um I have enjoyed in the last couple of weeks kind of revisiting uh, the band Jellyfish. Yeah. Is it Jellyfish? Yeah, yeah. Jellyfish, yeah. Yeah, um, revisiting some of their albums. They only had two of them in the early 90s, but it's cool to see where some of that McFly DNA for especially Motion in the Ocean comes in. And I think you you start to see a bit of it here too, where... We sort of discussed with All About You how they're kind of maturing into their sound. I think this is another step in that evolution. Um, I don't think it's perfect. I think it does kind of run out of steam a little bit and the, the chorus maybe doesn't have enough to sustain it. But overall, I think, yeah, it's a really positive step. The problem is with McFly, as I've already mentioned, is that they have a really high bar coming up. It's their kind of imperial phase. And I wouldn't say this is part of it. I'd say it's it's definitely good. But there's just something lacking here, which I think it's nice when you listen to it, but it doesn't leave much of an impression. But that's sometimes all you really need from a pop song like this. And yeah, I'm more than happy to see McFly again, especially after the last song. Um, nice to have a sort of reminder of what, you know, pop can be as opposed to just whatever the last thing was. But yeah, this is this is decent. I like this. I think uh, also we're not long off McFly doing a Jellyfish cover. Uh, no, of course. Getting yeah. on to this, uh, well, getting to number one and getting on this podcast. Uh, Andy, McFly, uh, I'll be okay. Is it okay? Is it is it more than okay? <laughs> I think it's more than okay. Yeah, um, I, I think this is an absolute pleasure. It's it's definitely nowhere near the leagues of All About You, but I think that's kind of the issue, really, why this slightly gets glazed over in the history books. Um, I mean, obviously, it didn't sell nearly as well as All About You and didn't have the kind of impact, but I do think that when you've got a band like McFly who are consistently churning out successful good pop hit after successful good pop hit, all of them pretty good so far, that... some of them will start to just get you know less credit than they should do because they come in a long line of hits um especially coming right after all about you which is basically mcfly at their peak really in terms of songwriting um this one coming right after it is kind of a lesser cousin of all about you really and that can't be avoided what's interesting is that i can absolutely see a version of history where this is the b-side to all about you Yes, instead of totally. that cover, of, instead of that cover of "You Got a Friend," because it has that same sort of optimistic, hopeful, kid-friendly, like you say, CBBC, was it that that kind of vibe to it? Um, so I could totally see this being packaged as a very strong double A size, 
Um, but they didn't. They released it separately and got two separate number ones, two separate hits out of it. And all power to them for that, for recognising the good material that they've got on their hands. I think with this one, it's again doing that thing that McFly often do, which is deceptive simplicity, really, where it sounds like a straightforward, nice pop song. But actually, from a like actual playing perspective and from a theory perspective, it's actually surprisingly complex, especially... Well, not the verses, but the chorus is surprisingly complex, where it never stops on a chord for more than a second or two. It just keeps changing and changing and changing to the point that you'd think all sense of tune should be lost in that chorus, but it's not. It's just well put together. There's just a lot of invention there, particularly like that they um, squeeze in that harmony of that ah, on the I'll be okay line at the end. That They could so easily just say I'll be okay, but they throw in a little vocal run there which just adds flavor to it i went through a really strange thing with this song that it had been a good few years um since i'd listened to it when i revisited again for the podcast and the first time i put it on i was like huh is this the right version because i could have sworn this had a swing rhythm i could have sworn it i could have sworn that this goes when you're down and you like and it had that kind of a beat to it exactly the same as all about you Basically, I could have sworn that that was how it went. Um, and I looked for other versions of it to see if I was mistaken. I'm not. It was just a trick of the head that I, I really, really thought it was different. And I kind of secretly think this would work better with the swing rhythm, to be honest. Um, but I realised why that is after talking to Robin Lizzie about this. It's because so many other McFly songs have a swing rhythm that I'm mashing them all together in my head. All About You, obviously, Stargirl. Love is easy. There's probably a few more there that I've forgotten, but so many big McFly hits have that kind of rhythm to it. And this is a rare exception, along with Five Colors in a Hair. And um, I guess I didn't realise quite how formulaic they are, so I've got to give it... Well, actually, no, I can't mark this song down for that. I should really have marked All About You and other songs down for that. But anyway, that's a conversation for another time. Um, as for this... Yeah, I really quite like it. It's it's nowhere near as good as All About You, and it doesn't really linger in the memory. I keep kind of forgetting about this one, to be honest, um, when I've been looking at songs we've got coming up, because it, it doesn't really stick. It doesn't really have the kind of impact or the sense of satisfaction that All About You brings, or that later McFly songs will bring. But it's really nice. It's just a nice listen. It's, it's a really pleasant way to pass a couple of minutes listening to this song. So, yeah, I, I probably... This is definitely one of those ones that I think I'll probably listen to a bit more and like more every time I listen to it, to be honest. Um, yeah, I just... It's a real revelation to me how much of a McFly fan I've become. Like, I've always really, really liked them, and I've always, you know, wanted to listen to more of them. I've always really appreciated what they did. Um, but these days, like whenever we cover a song by them, I'm like, oh my god, I love it! They're so good. I'm becoming a proper McFly super fan um, at the age of 31 rather than the age of 12. But there we go. Can't have it all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, around this time, I am uh, speaking of you know being a big fan of McFly. Around this time, I'm just about to start high school, and there was a girl in my year whose name will remain unsaid, but she changed well she didn't legally but on many of her you know workbooks and school documents and things like that tried to change her name to jones because she was that in love with danny jones oh bless her, uh, her surname i think my sister did the same you know yeah. i think she used to do that yeah. <laughs> um very little to say about i'll be okay except that mcfly just know how to execute a very good pop song this provides enough good 
catching material up front to keep you going in the first 90 seconds and then withholds its best decisions until later. Like when they add that little post-chorus, the uh, try a little harder, try your best, that bit. Wonderful. You know, lovely open-hearted power pop song. Uh, power pop song. Um, I th- feel like McFly have really settled on a sound now that's more like, you know, the the janglier end of power pop. You know how, like, their first album is them trying to figure things out. You know, they try Mersey Beat, they try American Alternative Rock, they try Surf Rock, they try all sorts of things. Whereas this feels like they settle on late 80s, early 90s, jangly power pop stuff. And it sounds great. They sound really comfortable. I think this is a little non-essential for me in terms of McFly's overall... Uh, discography, just because I think it's surrounded by some of their very best material. But this is never going to be a song that I'm going to turn off. I think, you know, this is something that older generations or previous eras would have described as a a great little toe tapper. Um, So, yeah, easily my favourite song this week. Um, But I feel like it sort of speaks for itself and a lot of its pleasures are already on the surface feel like it doesn't really demand interrogation, which is part of why I find it less interesting than the number ones I think that they have either side of this, because obviously we've got All About You, but then obviously we've got a couple of great ones coming up for McFly um, after this point too. Um, So yeah, very, very nice note to end the episode on. So do we have anything more to say about I'll Be Okay or McFly? I think um, it's an interesting point there, Rob, about them having found their sound. Um, I do agree with you on that, because looking back to some of their earlier songs, not really any of the songs we've covered, but I'm thinking Room on the Third... The song, sorry, the song Room on the Third Floor, not the album in particular. Yeah. And uh, That Girl as well off the album, and Surfer Babe, another album track. Like, those are songs that absolutely could have been busted songs. Like, they basically were busted songs, just sung by different people. And now you look at... All About You, I'll Be Okay, Stargirl coming up in the future. They could not be busted songs. They they, they have a different sound entirely. Um, and it's just nice. It's nice to see how that gradual change has happened, how they've gradually moved into a place that's theirs and nobody sees them as, you know, the successor to Busted anymore. They're big in their own right, probably bigger than Busted Everywhere and, for me, better than Busted Everywhere. And it's just nice to see them find their feet in that way because they're still so young here like so young they're like just turning 20 and mm. um it's fantastic to see them developing in this way um it's because it's now years later and i'm much older than the mcfly boys were here i feel like a proud parent even though i am much younger than them so yeah figure that one out <laughs> <laughs> so uh lizzie the three songs this week are any of them going into the vault or the pie hole for you Nothing is going into the vault. I'm afraid I am putting your beautiful in the pie hole. Well, it's like the end of the music video, isn't it? Where he jumps off that platform into the sea. <laughs> Dives straight pie. into the pie yeah. hole. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Andy, how about you? Are any is, are any songs going anywhere for you? No, I, I don't think your beautiful is anywhere near that bad. And um, I did think about putting I'll Be Okay in the vault, but no. No, that would be overly generous. So, no, nothing's going anywhere for me this week. No. Yeah, in terms of my nominations for the Pie Hole or the Vault, everything is blank. Um, not sending any song anywhere this week. So that means that's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. When we come back, we will be continuing our journey through 2005. And we're getting towards a very good period.
to 2005, if you ask me. Um, so we'll see you then. Thank you very much. See you then. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye. This shape was brilliant. This shape was pure. I saw three angles. Of that I'm sure. And I saw three pointy corners. And then I saw three straight sides. The top was very narrow and the base was oh so wide. Wait, that sounds like... The triangle, my triangle, oh triangle, it's true. I saw your shape in a crowded place. Now I don't know what to do. Cause you're gone out